In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John the Baptist, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Alphonsus Liguri, St. Joseph, Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so today we are doing something slightly out of sequence from the lecture note topics I gave you at the start of term. Um, if you've been looking, then there wasn't any assigned required reading for today. Um, basically, we covered natural law thoroughly enough in the last lecture that I'm happy to kind of leave that with you as a kind of one lecture summary of natural law for this course. Um, so we're actually going to take a step back and comment on something um, that you had assigned reading for weeks ago on, as it says there on the top of the page, grace, justification, merit and holiness. And basically we've got one page of notes on each of those topics and that's what we're going to go through today. So. Um, and I don't actually have a mind map today because I've not cleverly mapped out these concepts in a visual manner. Um, so we're going to go straight to the notes. So I start by asking the question, where to study grace? Yeah, so you've got all the different courses you're taught in the seminary. Well, which course should you look at the question of grace in? Um, in the era of St. Thomas Aquinas, he looks at grace in the context of the moral life, my field, moral theology. But after or about the time of the Protestant Reformation, grace was being studied in the context of systematic theology or dogmatic theology. Now, as I note there, um, the Catechism has made the choice to return to St. Thomas's structure and so the place in the catechism where grace is talked about is in the section we're looking at in this course in the context of the moral life. So you might say on one level, that means grace is about getting you to your end, the end of the moral life in God, being good. But it's also grace being a help to be good. It's kind of a very practical way of looking at grace. But conversely, um, by doing that, the catechism has kind of bypassed a whole series of arguments and debates that went on in the 16th century when grace was looked at in the context of dogma instead. So when grace was being focused on then, you had a lot of arguments, so the church said, well, let's just bypass that and look at it in the context of something else. Now, basically this first page, I'm outlining what happened back then. So in the 16th century, they say that we had controversies about grace, predestination, and free will. Have you done, you've not done church history yet, so you've not done the Protestant Reformation yet. So I'm just gonna give you a three-line summary of the whole Protestant Reformation in terms of this debate, okay? But the Protestant context, what did Calvin in particular teach? Well, it said that Calvin taught a thing called double predestination. Have any of you heard that term before? So the Bible says, talks about those that were predestined to be saved. So if you're going to be saved, that isn't because you're wonderful, so to speak, but that God has predestined you for that. You can't earn heaven. He's predestined you. Well, Calvin said, not only are some destined for heaven, but some are destined for hell. Not just that God knows they're going to hell, but that God has chosen them for it. So double predestination would imply that from all eternity, God has chosen this person and created them in mind in order that they would go to hell. 
This is called double predestination. And I'm, I'm giving a slight caricature of Calvin here, but that's basically the, the paradigm there. And what that means is that God is very much in charge. It's God's world, God's creation. He's the one who, even before he made the creation, has decided who's going to heaven, who's going to hell. Now, the problem with that is that it means that free will seems to be an illusion. That actually what we do is utterly irrelevant. That God has created some people in order that they will go to hell. And they have no possibility of being saved. Do you see the problem here? Yes? Um, yep, go on. Um, how would you... It's not... First history class, but how would he make up the the point of love then? Like God, love is God's nature. It's a good question, and I suppose I don't know a detailed answer. But I think my paraphrasing is the Calvinistic God doesn't seem to be very nice. He's a rather stern God, you know. Um, your Germanic people, your Swiss people, they're very disciplined. Um, he kind of fits in a certain mindset. Um, God's in charge. Now, so that was going on as a debate in the Protestant controversy, but then even kind of parallel to that, within the Catholic Church, there was a debate going on. So um, here I said the Catholic debate, the Dioxilis um, controversy, and this had the Dominicans fighting against the Jesuits. And I ask a parallel debate, yeah? Um, chicken and the egg. Which came first? You know, how do you answer that question? But once you start trying to answer the question, you kind of can burn up a lot of mental energy, write a lot of books, um, and that's more or less what was going on on this. So someone's going to be saved... Now, you can only be saved by grace. So did grace give you salvation before in free will? Or did, because you had free will, you merited grace? Okay, let me say that again. I do something good. Did I do something good because God moved in me and made me do something good. So grace is the thing that's active. Or did I do something good because I freely chose to do it? In which case, freedom is the thing that we're seeing there. Free will. So... You see the, the, the issue of what you're trying to put, what's first, the chicken or the egg? Okay, just back to my notes again. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Or which is primary in causing justification? Is it, one, God's grace moving in the soul, which means God is sovereign, God is God. Or two, man's free will responding to grace. So free will is real, and we're not mere puppets. I note uh, that the, this debate was highly acrimonious with both sides accusing the other of heresy. And at a kind of climactic point of it, in the year 1607, Pope Paul V forbade any more discussion of it, forbade any more publishing of works on it, said neither position was heretical, uh, and everyone was to shut up. Um, and I'm not sure if there are many other examples in church history where um, the, the popes intervened like that. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, so all of that happened because grace was being looked at in the context of um, dogma and systematic theology. So we can kind of, the suggestion is we bypass that whole problem by looking at it in the context of the moral life instead. 
And then what we say, everyone's clear about and everybody kind of agrees. Now, I've then got a little section I've called a faulty concept of freedom. And this would be my, um, my analysis of what went wrong in a lot of that debate. I said, earlier in this course, we touched on the problem of the modern concept of freedom, which flows out of the nominalist philosophy of the 14th century. In the modern view of freedom, God and freedom are enemies, are polar opposites. Either I'm free or God's commanding me to do something. These are two opposites. Whereas John Paul II says true freedom is freedom for something, not just freedom from something. Freedom has a goal, and you measure freedom by whether it's achieved that goal. And I've probably used this analogy with you before. If a little child is reaching, trying to get up to something, and the father lifts the child up, has the father made the child more free, or has the father interfered and prevented the child's freedom? Now, a kind of Thomistic analysis would say, well, know that the father has enabled the child to do what the child couldn't do before, made the child more free to its goal. And this is what grace does within us. Grace from God doesn't interfere with our freedom, rather it makes us more free. It gives us the power to do what we were striving for already, but couldn't do alone. So I paraphrase at the bottom there from St. Thomas. God's grace moves in us in such a way that we are more free with his assistance than we were without it. That God is not our enemy and his grace is not our enemy. His grace makes us more free than we are without it. more complicated than that still. It, the, the connection between nominalism and the Protestant thing is that freedom is the enemy of the law and the commandments. Um, which isn't the same thing as saying if there is a God there isn't freedom. Um, sorry, repeat the question again. Like, so I, I, I'm getting confused with the chicken and the egg as well. So, um, so if we're saying if we're putting these two things in contention, God versus freedom, under yeah. the nominalistic 14th century view, right, and the connection is to the Protestant Reformation, yeah, right, but the Protestants say that freedom is an illusion. So where the nominalists also hold that freedom is an illusion, thus not existing. No, they wouldn't, but I think you could say the trajectory they were heading down was going to end in that conclusion. Um, so the nominalists believed in freedom, but just had a notion of freedom where the law, God, and freedom were opposites. Yep. When I'm thinking about repeating what you just said to another person. I'm not sure I know how to say how God makes a person more free. Because in the example you used where the father picks up a child, I'm not sure how that increases freedom. It, it helps the person get to a goal. But I don't know how that was has to do with freedom. Freedom is an aspect of the ability to do something. 
So without the father lifting up the child, the child isn't free to get to what it wants to get to. The child wants to get to it, but is not free to do so. But by being lifted up, it gains that freedom to be able to reach for what it was trying to reach for before. It's a very different concept of freedom. Yeah. And we, in our Western world, we are the descendants of nominalism and Protestantism, even when we don't think it. Um, that freedom, in our mindset, is all about breaking off chains and nobody telling me what to do. Whereas there's a more ancient view of freedom that sees it as an, an aspect of the ability to act. Yeah. Seems this, the, the example doesn't really tie into the nominalist, I guess. Grace and law seem very different. Um, so like, I don't think this one doesn't really apply to the nominalist view that law and freedom are polar opposites and enemies. I don't see how this example kind of ties into that, or does it? I think you're right. This example is kind of looking at something slightly different. So, uh, no, I think you're fu right to say that it's slightly different things we're talking about. All of this I've gone through to kind of give you a 10-minute introduction for why the catechism has chosen to look at grace in the context of the moral life. So all of the complexity of chicken and egg um, did God move me and I became saved or did I freely do good and merited salvation um, the catechism bypasses all of that chicken and egg thing by looking at grace in a different context which is what we're going to do Now you can see, you could have a whole course on the dilemma I've just raised up here. We're now going to go through what the church teaches in the catechism um, on the related issues here. So the first thing we're going to look at is the question, page two here, of what's called justification. Um, how many of you got good... Bible bumping, Bible thumping Protestant friends who will ask you, are you saved? Yes. And if you cannot take, you, if you are saved, you should be able to tell them the day, the moment, where you were when you realized you were saved, when you made that act of trust in the Almighty, cast yourself as a miserable sinner upon his, his forgiveness, and at that moment you were saved. And they'll use phrases like once saved, always saved. That once you're one of the chosen, predestined, always saved. Um, that isn't the Catholic understanding of being justified by God. And part of our problem in the 20th century is that as Catholics we can almost be afraid of the word justification because the people that have been using this word a lot have been the Protestants for 400 years. But actually, it was our word before they came along. It was in our Bible before they came along. We should be comfortable with talking about justification. Okay, let's go back to our, to our notes here. I start with the, and this is obviously um, an outline of the Protestant position even a caricature of it, but um, here. What is the Protestant opinion? We are justified by an act of faith in Christ. We are not justified by our deeds. So um, Luther would have pointed to Romans, justified by faith apart from works of the law. What that means is justification is seen as a legal concept that the sinner throws himself at the mercy of the judge who freely chooses to pardon or not pardon with no basis on merit. 
since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You cannot merit before God. You are a worthless sinner. All you can do is cast yourself upon his mercy. Justification, I say, is not about change in the sinner. It's about change in the verdict. The judge changes the assignment, but you do not change to cause the judge's change. And here's the classic Protestant image. The sinner remains forever a pile of dung, merely covered by the clean white snow of Christ. You all familiar with this image? So God the Father looks down. You are this pile of dung. Now, if you take on Christ, clothe yourself in Christ, then you are covered in white snow. And the Father looks down and he just sees the beautiful white snow of being clothed in Christ. But you remain the pile of dung. And so this is why Protestant theology will talk about being corrupt, being depraved, whereas we will talk about being deprived of grace, not being depraved in our nature. Yes, inclined to sin, but our nature still remains fundamentally good. So we don't use an image like a pile of dung to describe human nature. Have you heard this summary of Protestant position? Do you, how many of you, so some of you have Protestant friends, you will have engaged in this banter to some extent. Max? Wouldn't we say that an act of faith is an act of the deed? Well, this is where Protestantism, it, it, it seems problematic, isn't it? So that would be the Catholic analysis. That yes, actually, there is a deed here. It's the act of faith. So how can you say it's not about deeds? At the very least, it's an intellectual deed. Yeah. Historically, um, you know, it said that the Protestant Reformation was caused by two things. One of them was um, Luther's piles. The other was Henry's loins. So Henry's loins, he wanted six wives. Um, and so he broke from the Pope in order to have six wives. Luther's bowels, he was such an anxious, scrupulous, absorbed, am I sinful, am I not, am I, can, I, can I merit, can I not, um, that his way out was to say, well, whether I've done wrong or not doesn't matter, I'm just going to make this act of faith, and then everything's okay. So, Protestantism is hard to talk about in general because there's so many differences. Exactly, right? yeah. So, we have this line, a sinner, is, a sinner remains a pile of dung forever, right? Mm -hmm. Who is making that argument? Is it Luther himself, or is it, us? Is it somewhere along the line? Is someone different? Uh, because it seems problematic to me because like, Luther was kind of, I mean, he was a smart man. Yeah. Know. Obviously, if you say that every person's a pile of dung, they all came from God, so that means basically you're saying God made something happen. So that's a bad argument, and I think Luther would see that. But well, because of original sin. So we can't do anything um, that's going to get rid of the original sin, basically, or overcome it in, in, their, in their mind. In their mind. And so that God made everything perfect, it was only because of original sin that we're the pile of dung. Um, I meant to check a source. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Luther that said that, not Calvin. Um, but it is one of the two founders of Protestantism, this image. It's not a later development. Um, the pile of dung. That was Luther, yeah. Right. Um, I am aware, though, in giving a two-minute summary of Lutheranism's view of grace and justification, I'm not doing justice to the nuances in there, but that is basically the problem as it's been laid out. 
So what's the Catholic analysis in response? So I start there, I say the Catholic position is to say that putting faith against deeds is a false dichotomy. Have you all heard that phrase before, a false dichotomy? When two things are put in opposition that actually aren't in opposition. Um, and then I quote James's letter, show me your faith without deeds. How can you do that? And I will show you my faith by my deeds. So this is also the Bible. So Luther said that the epistle of James was an epistle of straw. Um, and at one stage, at least in his life, he'd taken it out of the Bible and put it at the back, um, which for a man who said, you know, sola scriptura, only the Bible, doesn't seem to be reverencing the Bible very much. Um, so this is the basically the heart of the Catholic reply to this, that it's a false dichotomy to put these two things in opposition. So what does the catechism say? Well, the catechism roots the context in the change in man brought about by grace. So justification isn't merited by self-deeds, but by grace. But justification isn't independent of deeds, because it occurs within the change of conversion. Justification isn't just about a mere external legal imputation, but a change of status that goes with a change of being. So you are justified before God because something has changed. I've converted, I've become a new creation, therefore I am different before God. The judgment before God reflects a change in reality. Grace has done something. And I can't say that that means I'm good because I didn't merit the grace that did that but that something did change, and so therefore deeds are inherently bound up in this. Uh, Josh, can you read that quotation from the Catechism for us? The first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit. The first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion, affecting justification in accordance with Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of the Gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moved by grace, man turns toward God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. And that last line that's in the Catechism, but quoted from the Council of Trent, responding to the Protestant Reformation, Justification is not just you're forgiven, but it goes with being sanctified, being renewed in what you are. Um, so the Protestant model would be that you are justified before God, and sometime later, maybe, you might become sanctified become holy. But that's a, a separate thing. Whereas what the catechism is describing is that actually this is a thing that happens together. That's you are justified before God because he has sanctified you. Whereas the Protestant analysis distinguishes these, separates them. So to return to my notes, as I've put in bold there, bypassing the Protestant attempts to make sanctification a later and optional process that follows justification, 
the Catechism describes the following as simultaneous. Detachment from sin, reconciliation of God and man, the acceptance of God's righteousness through faith in Christ Jesus, the outpouring of faith, hope and charity, being confirmed to the righteousness of God. Justification entails the sanctification of man's whole being. So it's not a later process. It happens together. By grace. This is a pivotal thing to be holding on to here. Sequentially, justification is merited by Christ's passion. So at the beginning of this whole process, it's the Lord Jesus on the cross, not me. The first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion, affecting justification. Moved by grace, man turns toward God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from another. Justification follows on from God's forgiveness. And just to note, the Catechism roots this with the sacraments, that justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It's not just a private act of the believer. So again, you know, the Calvinist, the Lutheran, me and Jesus, um, and the sacraments just don't really fit in there. Yep? Uh, just for clarification, in the Protestant uh, way of thinking, baptism doesn't actually do anything, right? It's just basically like an outward symbol that this conversion of your heart is taking place. And we're not washing away original sin. We're just basically saying, it's almost like virtue signaling. It's kind of like, hey, it's happened in my heart. So, right? uh, yeah, I, I, I just like the thought of reducing sacraments to virtue signaling. Um, that's, um, so as you pointed out earlier, saying what Protestants believe is difficult because there's so many different ones, but the core of the Protestant position is just as you described it. So when Cardinal Newman, within the Church of England as an Anglican, was arguing about whether the Church of England was, because he originally tried to claim it was still Catholic, for him the defining issue was whether baptism really did work a regeneration or the Protestant position is just a sign of something that's already happened. How do you fit into this, the ideal of virtue? The Catholic position or the Protestant? No, the, the Protestant. Well, so the Protestants really don't talk about virtue because virtue is tied up in this later right. process of sanctification. And for the Protestant mindset, the problem with talking about virtue is it's focusing on your deeds and therefore you justifying yourself before God by what a wonderful person you are. Whereas they say, no, you're not a wonderful person, you're a pile of dumb, just trust in Jesus. So this is a one-page summary of justification in the Catechism. Next page, grace. Here we have a different, actually this is a two-page summary. So this is in a sense is a little more straightforward. Um, don't really have the same chicken and egg dilemma going on here. Um, so first, I've broken it down as a put there. Asking the question, what is grace? Well, first, grace is a help from God that he gives us to respond to our vocation of becoming his adopted sons. Grace is also a participation in the life of God. So grace is this supernatural thing. When I share in grace, I'm sharing in the life of God himself. And, you know, we're called to be partakers of the divine nature. It's possessing grace that makes us partakers of the divine nature. Grace is, first and foremost, the gift of the Spirit who justifies and sanctifies us. And it's also supernatural. It surpasses the power of human intellect and will 
as that of every other creature. So that what is grace? It's something utterly beyond, supernatural. It's not like the animals. It's not like the plants. It's a gift from God. And what is its purpose? Well, its purpose is to make us become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature and eternal life. It introduces us into the intimacy of the Trinitarian life. By baptism, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ, the head of his body, as an adopted son, he can henceforth call God Father, in union with the only Son. He receives the life of the Spirit, who breathes charity into him, and who forms the church. And the last kind of purpose of grace, to make us a new creation. That's kind of stating it all at the most general level. What is grace? What is its purpose? Now, the Catechism lists lots of different types of graces. Um, so it's not just that grace is a kind of general thing. Actually, it does lots of different things. And so we use different labels to describe the different things it does. So first we have what are called actual graces. Actual graces which refer to God's interventions, either at the beginning of conversion or in the course of the work of sanctification. So I say mystically, that could be you know, when we receive a touch in prayer or an inspiration in a sermon. That's a kind of individual prod, an actual grace. I think even physically we can... You know, the individuals that come to us in life and help us. Um, these are another way in which God works in individual prompts, things that come to us. That may not, and the, the point here is, these aren't things that last. They're moments, things that happen, um, which is different from habitual grace. So these promptings, these individual things, are given to you in order that something else will then stay in you. But that there are these things that are momentary, actual graces, as they're called. So if you cooperate with those actual graces, you will then have within you the possession of habitual grace, which is the next category. The isolated impulses of actual graces are designed to lead us to that habitual possession of what's called sanctifying or deifying grace that makes us holy, makes us like God. Sam, can you read that catechism definition on sanctifying grace? Oh, yeah. Sanctifying grace is an habitual gift. Okay, I'm sorry. Sanctifying grace is an habitual gift, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself to enable it to live with God, to act by his love. Habitual grace, the permanent disposition to live and act in keeping with God's will. So you see a distinction there between something that stays in you, habitual grace, and something that is just isolated promptings, actual graces. Then we can distinguish again another type of grace, sacramental graces. So as the catechism kind of sums up, gifts proper to the different sacraments. So you know, there's seven sacraments, those seven sacraments do different stuff. They have different graces within them. That the grace you get at confirmation is not the same as the grace you get in confession. Just to say, oh, it's grace. Well, no, it's, it's different. God's doing different things, giving different gifts. So, sacramental graces. It's a whole category there. 
Then special graces. Um, Carlos, could you read the quotation there? Also called charisms. Charisms after the Greek term used by Saint Paul, gaining favor, to this get benefit. Charisms are oriented towards sanctifying grace. They are intended for the common good of the church. They are the service of the charity, of charity which builds up the church. Okay, so special graces or charism. So this is from St. Paul, New Testament term. God gives gifts to certain individuals that aren't for them, but to enable them to serve others. And these are called charisms. So if somebody, so like we think of the Old Testament, the prophets, when the prophets were given various messages, usually the prophets got in trouble. They were unpopular. They, it didn't help them. They were given the, that gift, that charism of a message in order to serve the people. In a parallel way, my priesthood. Why have I been given the gift of the priesthood? Not for my benefit, but for the mission of serving the people. Um, the sacrament of marriage. Each of the couple, the spouses in a couple, have a charism missioning them to the other. So there are all kinds of things in the church that are given to serve others. So some people who are not ordained at all would still have a recognizable supernatural gift of being able to preach. And if it's supernatural, that means it's not just because they're clever or articulate or they went to a good theology college, but somehow there's a stable movement of something that's been given in them that is active, the spirit is active when they're preaching. So this is a whole other, other category of grace. Then graces of state, you all heard of these before. Um, so every person is given the graces they need to live the life they're called to. Graces of state that accompany the exercise of the responsibilities of the Christian life and of the ministries within the church. So God doesn't ask you to do something and then fail to give you the ability to do what he asks. This is a principle we see in the scriptures and the vocation of the different individuals. But again and again, all kinds of church documents make this point. Um, God equips those he chooses. And so God's called me to be a priest even if I find myself struggling, even if I find myself in a hard situation, the grace of state means I have the grace to do what he's calling me to do. And this is a very important principle to remember when we're low. Questions, comments? I'm running through a lot of categories here. I know that sometimes isn't very interesting, but... Um, I'm guessing you've heard these words before. So it's just the fact they're all put together. And I think I would say as a summary point, one of the key things to, to grasp from this is grace isn't just a single thing. It has many different forms. And that God works in us in many different ways. Page four. So, the Catechism does briefly delve into this question of what we were touching on before, the question of predestination that was flagged up by Calvin in particular. So what's the relationship between predestination and free will? 
So if God has called me and chosen me and predestined me, am I free or has he just fixed it? So the Catechism notes the ability to respond and accept grace is itself a grace. Yeah, so God gives me a grace. Well, even my ability to receive that grace is a grace already. It's only by grace itself that we can... um, that we can continue to respond to grace and grow in grace. Uh, Max, would you mind reading the next two quotes, paragraph, uh, catechism quotes there? It is only by grace itself that we can only continue to respond to grace and grow in grace. The preparation of man for the reception of grace is already a work. This ladder is needed to arouse and sustain our collaboration and justification through faith and sanctification through charity. That brings to completion in us what he has begun, since he who completes his work by cooperating with our will began by working so that we might live, we might will it. No one can merit the initial grace, which is at the origin of conversion, moved by the Holy Spirit. We can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life as well as necessary temporal goods. That was all the whole chicken and egg thing? Not, not completely, um, but God, God's the one at work in the very beginning. Yes, we freely cooperate, um, but God's the one at work in the beginning. Yeah. Had this eternal conflict of like, solar gratia. Yeah. It would seem that. I mean, I guess, like, how, what would the church say against that? I guess, like, how. how when, like, the, the ability to be free is a grace. I mean, this is kind of arguing. And if you are free people, then your action necessarily constitutes grace, right, in that regard. Sustenance, the fact that we exist as a grace. I'm not entirely sure I get the question. How, what were the church saying to Solagatia? Like, like, we live graces in alignment So, every heresy is the denial of some aspect of what's true. Right. And what's missing in the Solagatia is that free will is a real thing. Right. And that with that merit is a real thing. Merit, we're going to come on to on the next page. Yeah? Uh, go along with Max's question. Does, is it fair to say grace first? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah. You, I'd phrase it a different way. Nothing else could be first. If God's the source of creation, God's got to be first. Um, but yes, it'd be fair to say grace first. And, and that is what the Catechism has said right there. Grace first, but not only grace. To paraphrase it that way. Now the next question I respond to, and the Catechism responds to, you know, your evangelical friends will tell you they know they're saved. And I remember arguing with evangelical friends at university. They would say, if you don't know you're saved, you're not because the believer knows it. And if you don't know, you know, how can you, how can you be a follower of Jesus if you don't know if you're going to heaven? Well, it's, you know, it's not a problem with Jesus. It's a problem with me. I don't know whether I will persevere. I don't know myself well enough to know. Um, this demand, to, you've got to know whether you're saved if you're really a believer or if you're really in a state of grace so um, the next quotation I've got there from the catechism is responding to that um, Joe could you read that quotation from the catechism that 
It belongs to the supernatural order. Grace escapes our experience and cannot be known except by faith. We cannot therefore rely on our feelings or our works to conclude that we are justified and saved. However, according to the Lord's words, thus you will know them by their fruits. Reflection on God's blessings in our life and in the lives of the saints offers us a guarantee that grace is at work in us and spurs us on to an ever greater, an ever greater faith and an attitude of trustful poverty. A pleasing illustration of this attitude is found in the reply of St. Joan of Arc to a question posed as a trap by her ecclesiastical judges. Asked if she knew that she was in God's grace, she replied, If I am not, may it please God to put me in it. If I am, may it please God to keep me there. So she's saying she doesn't know, and she asks, please put me in grace if I'm not, and please keep me there if, I'm, if I am already there. But we can't know. We can look at the fruits in our lives, as it says there, and that, you know, speculates. Um, but grace, you can't feel grace. You can't measure it that way. So it's kind of a fool's errand to demand to know, am I in a state of grace? Am I saved or not? So I then have a quotation that isn't from the Catechism, but from one of my favourite books that I read it. University by Carl Keating, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. Are you saved? asked the fundamentalist. I am redeemed, replies the Catholic, and like the Apostle St. Paul, I am working out my salvation in fear and trembling, with a hopeful confidence but not a false assurance. All this being, as the Church has taught, unchanged since the time of Christ. I memorized that many years ago. And he's, he's picking up on this phrase from Philippians, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's hard to take that phrase from Philippians and make sense of that in a Lutheran mindset. Okay, so the last thing we need to look at really today is the question of merit. So page um, which flows into the question of, of holiness. So, what do I say here? I say, Catholics speak frequently and truly of us meriting the reward of heaven or meriting the damnation of hell. Well, Jesus teaches that uh, we will be rewarded or condemned on account of our deeds. So if you think about Matthew 25, you know, they're not judged, the sheep and the goats, on their faith. They're judged on their deeds. So, Josh, could you read that from Matthew for us? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Judged on their deeds. But, that said, merit can only be seen as an analogous or relative term when speaking, spoken of with respect to God. Uh, Carlos, could you read the next passage on the Catechism there? Merit can only be seen as an analogous, relative term when considered with respect to God. In regard to God, there is no strict right to any merit on the part of man. Between God and us, there is an immeasurable inequality for we have received everything from Him, our Creator. So, an immeasurable inequality. So, we use this word merit, but obviously, we can't say it's strict merit. So who does have merits? Well, the Lord Jesus. He has merits. He is perfect God and perfect man. On the cross, he did an act of infinite love, infinite merit. He has merits. We have merits only in as much as we are in union with him and partake of his merit. So adoption into Christ, in baptism, in faith, 
that gains us the merit he has. So my little good deeds have merit because I unite them to him. By myself, they don't have merit. But if I unite them to him, they have a real merit. Uh, Pat, can you read those two paragraphs from the Catechism? Pralil adoption. Pralil adoption and making us partakers by grace and divine nature can bestow true merit on us as a result of God's gratuitous justice. This is our right by grace to pour out of love, making us co-heirs with Christ and worthy of obtaining the promised inheritance of eternal life. The merits of our good works, our gifts, and the divine goodness. Grace has gone before us, now we are given what is due. Our merits are God's gifts. The charity of Christ is the source in us of all our merits before God. Grace, by uniting us to Christ in active love, ensures the supernatural quality of our acts and consequently their merit before God and before men. Saints have always had a lively awareness that their merits were pure grace. So we do have merit, but we only merit through grace. We only have merit in union with him. Next, the initiative, therefore, belongs to God, not to us. But by cooperating with his grace and letting his charity be operative and love in us, we let him love in us, therefore we merit. So by cooperating with grace and by doing good deeds, we merit more goods. And there's a very important principle I say next. Many graces and goods are lost to us because we decline to cooperate with past graces. There are things that God wanted to give me if I had only asked for them. Graces he wanted to give me if only I had prayed for them. He chooses in his economy to involve us. But if we fail to engage, we fail to give what he's wanting. St. Augustine describes that saying, you know, we can only make ourselves ready to receive by this asking. That unless I'm asking, I'm not ready to receive what he's giving me. Sam, can you read those two quotation paragraphs from the Catechism at the bottom there? Since the initiative. Since the initiative belongs to God in order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace, forgiveness, and justification. At the beginning of the conversion, moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Even temporal goods like health and friendship can be merited in accordance with God's wisdom. These graces and goods are the object of Christian prayer. Prayer tends to the grace we need for uh, meritorious actions. The merit of man before God and the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiated uh, initiative, and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God, then to the faithful. The man's merit, moreover, itself is due to God for his good actions preceding Christ from the predispositions and assistance given by the Holy Spirit. So merit is real, but it's relative. Merit is only because we share in Christ or in union with Christ. But we can merit many things, many additional graces, many additional goods, even temporal goods like health and friendship. By doing those good deeds in union with him.
Okay, um, a last question in this regard. What measures the degree of merit of my good deeds? So we've said merit's a real thing. I'm doing something good. What measures that degree of merit? And the answer very simply is love. That the more love it is done with, the more merit it has in the sight of God. That love is the possession of the life of God itself. Uh, I only have love in me by his free gift. But in as, more as, in as much as I do this in love, then my deed has more merit. So I can give a beautiful sermon, edifying the people, teaching the people wisdom, but the merit it has in God's sight is how much love I'm doing it with. Am I doing it so that I look intelligent? Am I doing it so that people say, oh, good sermon, Father? Um, or am I doing it in love? Love is the measure of the merit of what we do. Okay, last page, page six, what is holiness? So I start with the question, what is the criteria for measuring holiness? Um, so I, I ask, you know, is holiness complex and mathematical? Is it mapped out as 35% humility, 12% prudence, you know, is when I was young, I, I had all these thoughts in my head that there was a, a precise structure for what holiness looked like. And then I studied St. Thomas and it all became very simple. That holiness is love. That the measure of holiness in a person is the measure to which divine charity lives in. And the measure of the perfection of a specific act is the measure with which it is done out of love. And the degree of glory you'll have in heaven is the degree of love with which you have lived on earth. So, you know, lots of saints have had visions saying the same uh, truth in different analogies that Teresa of Lisieux had. So she had a vision of heaven where everybody was all these different chalices and every chalice was filled to the brim. But the chalices were all different sizes. And while we live on this earth, we are making our chalice bigger or smaller. If we get to heaven, it will be filled up, but as full as we've made it to be. And part of the reason to know this is that it's worth being holy, to, to seek that glory for him. Okay, Josh, can you read that quotation from St. Thomas there? A thing is said to be perfect. A thing is said to be perfect insofar as it attains its proper end, which is the ultimate perfection thereof. Now it is charity that unites us to God, who is the last end of the human mind, since he that abideth in charity abideth in God, and God in him. Therefore the perfection of the Christian life consists radically in charity. And you this is one of those things I hope I'm articulating the point precisely but it's kind of an obvious point it's just coherent with everything else in our faith um, but what does perfection look like? it looks like love what is perfection? it's love okay the catechism then makes the point um, all Christians are called to be holy so this, you know, the Second Vatican Council talked about the universal call to holiness. So in the Old Testament, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus in Matthew's Gospel is recorded as saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the Catechism, quoting Lumen Gentium, Vatican II, says, 
all Christians in any state or walk of life are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. So whether you're a married person called to live perfect love with your spouse and your children, whether you're a single person um, called to live perfect love with those you work with, whether you're a priest, that we're all called to the perfection of charity. This is our vocation. So in different states of life, lay people are obliged, called to holiness simply because they are Christians. That religious, you know, that the term religious with capital R, it's those consecrated in the three vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, they're in what's called the state of perfection because they're in the state of these three vows, a state directly ordered to holiness. But they're not thereby automatically holy. Yes, you've heard this distinction before, this phrase, that the state of perfection. So they're not perfect, but they're in a state of perfection because the state of life is structured perfectly. And priests, what you are here to become while not in the state of perfection of religious, we have an additional obligation to pursue holiness because of their service to others. This opposes an additional reason to be holy. So I need to be holy not just for myself, but in order for the people. They need me to be holy. They deserve a holy pastor. So that gives me an additional Motive, an additional requirement, an additional obligation to pursue holiness. And how, how does holiness come about? Well, by union with Christ, mystically. The Catechism says, spiritual progress tends towards ever more intimate union with Christ. This union is called mystical because it participates in the mystery of Christ through the sacrament the holy mysteries, and in him in the mystery of the Holy Trinity. So have you done the catechism pillar on the sacraments yet? You have, okay. So you you have, others haven't. But the ancient word for a sacrament is mystery, so that these things, the mystical life is the sacramental life. And then rather starkly, the catechism says, Holiness comes by union with the cross. The way of perfection passes by way of the cross. There is no holiness without renunciation and spiritual battle. Spiritual progress entails the ascesis and mortification that gradually lead to living in the peace and joy of the Beatitudes. So we've been looking at grace today, making the point that grace in the catechism is in the context of the moral life, how to live, but that it is also addressing these justification issues and merit issues um, that were flagged up in the Protestant Reformation, but that merit is a real thing, sanctification is a real thing, and when we're looking at the moral life, the way to lead, the way to get to heaven, Um, that's the natural context for understanding all these things.